Join Dr. Anthony Fauci and your colleagues in respiratory medicine at the ATS 2021 International Conference starting May 14th. Register today at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ina uh, John Lagic, who's the first author of a paper entitled CPAP Restores Declarative Memory Deficit and Obstructive Sleep Apnea, which was published online in the Blue Journal earlier this year. And also Dr. Andrew Varga, who wrote the accompanying editorial. Dr. John Lagic is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School in Boston, and Dr. Varga is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Now, before we discuss the paper, uh, I'd like to ask several uh, general questions about memory. Andrew, what are the different phases of memory, and why is sleep so important? Yeah, so I, I think it's worth starting with saying that there's lots of different kinds of memory, but when we think about sort of canonical long-term memory, um, it's classically divided into three phases in which first there is encoding, um, meaning uh, new experiences or, or new information that you encounter, typically during wakefulness. And then there's a period of uh, offline processing or consolidation that occurs. And then finally, at some later point, uh, you are asked to recall that information. And sleep seems to be important for potentially all three phases but I would say the greatest abundance of uh, evidence, uh, especially from the world of neurobiology, suggests that sleep is particularly important for that offline processing or consolidation phase. And how may sleep disorders, and especially obstructive sleep apnea, impact memory? So sleep apnea has two pretty obvious uh, pathological sequelae, which are the sleep fragmentation and the intermittent hypoxia. And um, you know, at the termination of any apnea, there's often, at the very least, a small arousal, meaning there's introduction of, you know, a brief period of wake-like alpha activity uh, into the otherwise, you know, normal sleep uh, rhythms. Um, or there can be a stage shift from, from one stage of sleep into another, including transition into, into wakefulness. Um, and we know that people that have pretty significant sleep apnea, where the apneas are occurring pretty frequently, such people have an inability to even enter some of the deeper stages of sleep. So when apneas are occurring quite frequently, um, there's often only non-REM stage one and non-REM stage two present, and you, you may, may not even see the presence of non-REM stage three or slow wave sleep or the, or the presence of, of REM sleep. And um, it's thought to be potentially important because um, some of those deeper stages of sleep have been implicated in memory processes. And, um, and in particular, slow oscillations, which occur during slow wave sleep, are thought to be particularly important for forms of declarative memory. And so that chronic interruption or fragmentation of, of slow wave sleep due to apnea can be interrupting that. Or as I said, there can be potentially an absence of entry even into, into slow wave sleep. And then additionally, there's the intermittent hypoxia um, in which there are repetitive drops in the oxygen saturation and oxygen availability to end organs. And as we know, all cells need oxygen to do their job. 
in the body, but I would argue that um, neurons in particular can be pr particularly sensitive to drops in oxygen. And hippocampal pyramidal neurons, which are neurons that are thought to be particularly important for uh, forming new memories, are known to be exquisitely sensitive to, at the very least, sustained hypoxia. I think it's not completely clear whether or not they're as sensitive to intermittent hypoxia, but I think it stands to reason that that's likely to be the case. So I think that both of those sequelae of apnea can uh, conspire to negatively impact memory. Thank you, that's very helpful. In your, in your, in your two studies, you used a, a declarative memory test called verbal paired associates. Uh, can you tell us about this test and why you selected it for these studies? Yeah, so the, um... First of all, uh, the declarative memory um, is consists of two types of episodic and semantic memories, which are differentiated by the kind of information they deal with. So for episodic memory, um, that consists of personal events, like, for example, what did I have for dinner last night? And semantic memory uh, is the memory of facts and events. So for example, what's the capital of France? Um, so it's very relevant in our daily lives. That's why um, we think of this as a very important, uh, very important type of memory. The formation of declarative memory has also been shown to depend on intact hippocampal and surrounding medial temporal lobe structures. And so this, for that reason, this area becomes very interested interesting and relevant for sleep apnea because of that area's uh, sensitivity to hypoxia. And because those brain areas are also affected in Alzheimer's dementia, we know that there's a link between um, sleep apnea and dementia. So that's the reason why this test or this type of memory became very interesting to study. And the verbal pairs associate test is um, actually a well-established declarative memory test. And there were several studies prior to my studies that had already shown that this learning benefits from a night of sleep. And specifically, more, um, it relies on uh, mostly slow wave sleep. And perform so performance changes as a function of how much slow wave sleep that individual can generate and again, that also is very relevant for OSA patients because they are often depleted of slow-wave sleep. And then the test itself consists of 40-word pairs of nouns which are loosely related. So some examples are joy and harmony or ship and flood, decision, law. And in the beginning, the word pairs are presented visually on a computer screen to the participants. And so they kind of go through them and try to remember them. And then in a second step, they are shown only the first word and then uh, have to put in the second uh, related word. And so that's called cute recall. And that list is repeatedly shown until the subjects reach a, at least 24 correct uh, word pairs. So that's called the 60% criterion. Um, again, that's been used in the literature. And that ensures that um, everybody is able to learn the task to a similar level and that the encoding of the task is uh, more or less similar in all subjects. Um, so we want them to have the same starting point if, if possible. 
And then um, the retest is done at various times. In our case, it was done the next morning. And um, for that test, you only see uh, the first word and then you have to enter the second one and there's no uh, feedback. Um, can you tell us about your case control study and, and the primary findings? Yes, uh, so for the case control study, we enrolled a total of 36 patients with newly diagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, and we chose patients with an AHI greater than five per hour, and we uh, added 36 matched healthy controls with no subjective sleep complaints. Um, I think it's important to point out that those were not subjects that were that came to the sleep clinic that turned out to have a normal sleep study. These were completely healthy subjects with no, um, no subjective sleep complaints. And we matched them specifically in terms of age and cognitive ability. So for this type of test, um, some people use education as um, a controlling factor. We actually had them do a Wexler intelligence test. Uh, to make sure they also were matched in, in terms of cognitive ability. And so then um, the subjects came into the lab. Um, everybody had a, um, a baseline uh, study um, to, to make sure they didn't have uh, sleep apnea or to, um, it also served as an adaptation night. And then for the actual study night, they came into the lab and they did, um, they learned the verbal pass test and they also did a psychomotor vigilance test. That's a test that uh, looks at attention because sometimes the argument is that sleep apnea patients are able to learn, but they're, they're not as attentive and that might interfere with their ability to encode information. So we use that test also to control for attention and vigilance. So they performed those tests, then they had a full night polysomnogram, and then the next morning um, they were tested again on the, uh, they had the recall test uh, for the verbal pass uh, associates test, and they also did a psychomotor vigilance test, and uh, then they were done. And uh, when we looked at the results, uh, what is important to point out is that both groups were able to learn to the 60% criterion in a similar fashion. So it wasn't that the OSA patients took longer to reach, uh, to learn this test. And then um, what was striking the next morning was that the OSA patients, um, they achieved an average 74% correct answer. And that was a 7.1% increase from the evening before. Whereas the healthy controls um, had 82.4% correct answers. So they improved by 14% better. So that was significantly different. We then did a combined regression analysis, which included oxygen, nadia, AHI, arousal index and uh, sleep stages. And when we put all this together, it was really the slow wave sleep that predicted uh, the overnight improvement. So in other words, if you look at sleep fragmentation and hypoxia alone, they also, you know, you find a, an association, but it's really the impact of sleep fragmentation and on the formation of slow wave sleep that then predicts the overnight improvement. So this led you to perform a randomized um, controlled trial. Can you also tell us about this and the results? 
Yeah, so we then took the OSI patients um, and they knew that beforehand that there was a second part of the study. Uh, they were randomized to two groups. So it was a CPAP group and a no CPAP groups. And both groups initially were presented with a slideshow, which uh, showed them uh, lifestyle changes that we were asking them to do. So that included avoidance of junk food, uh, no sweetened beverages, portion controls, and also exercise. They were asked to try and exercise for 30 minutes daily. And then we, uh, the CPAP group was given a CPAP device and asked to do the lifestyle changes. And the no CPAP group just was asked to do the lifestyle changes. And the reason we did that, we initially thought about doing uh, sham CPAP, um, but felt that that had some difficulties and people often know that they receive sham and they might actually sleep worse. And we felt that um, a lifestyle change uh, was important because a lot of people, when they receive the diagnosis of OSA, are making some changes just you know whenever you receive a new diagnosis. So we use that as a control. And then we used a time frame of three months for them to apply these changes and then return. And that was also based on previous literature. Um, some people have used smaller um, time frames, but three months seemed to be what was mostly studied in the past. So we wanted to stay consistent with the previous literature. And then after three months, uh, the both OSA groups returned into the lab and did a similar um, test session. So they were trained again on uh, the verbal pass test uh, to criterion. Um, this was a different version, of course. Uh, they did the psychomotor vigilance test and they had a, a polysomnogram. And in the morning, um, they were again asked to recall the word pairs. And similar to the group comparison between um, healthy controls and, and OSA patients, those two OSA patient groups uh, performed very similar in the evening. And then the CPAP group, which was allowed to uh, wear the CPAP uh, during the night of the study, they improved by 13.2% in the morning. And so that was very similar to the healthy controls versus the no CPAP group, which again improved by 7%, again, very similar to their initial performance in the baseline um, test session three months earlier. And uh, when we looked at the PSG, we saw that the uh, CPAP group had a lot more stage three or slow wave sleep. So they had 15.8% uh, slow wave sleep versus 7% in the no CPAP group. And what was very interesting was that the increases of slow wave sleep from the baseline night to the month, uh, the, the night three months later, that predicted their improvement on the verbal pass test. So that's another. It supports the idea that it's really the slow wave sleep that is contributing to this type of memory consolidation and also that it can be recovered. That's, I think, the most important message from this study is that uh, while sleep apnea patients are lacking slow wave sleep, um, if you treat it, it can be recovered and it can also not just on the PSG, but that's also a functional benefit. So they are able to consolidate their memory just as healthy controls. 
So those are quite impressive findings. Uh, Andrew, how do these results compare with other studies in patients with obstructive sleep apnea? Because the impact of CPAP on memory has been assessed in some of the larger trials, uh, such as Apple's. Yeah, so you know, I think this is you know a much more impressive finding than than anything that's been done in any randomized controlled trial before. The, the biggest of which, as you mentioned, was Apple's. I think to me, you know, that one of the major strengths of, of this study was was the fact that they really used what I'd call a, a sleep dependent task, meaning that the encoding, the recall of the material is actually separated by a period of time that contains sleep, and that sleep that either does or does not contain apnea. And I think that that paradigm is really really powerful, and and I would I wish more people. <laughs> Would, would do that. And that's probably one of the main differences between this study and Apple's is that Apple's, you know, really didn't use what I would call a sleep dependent, you know, memory task. And in fact, Apple's really looked at three primary cognitive outcomes. And really, in my opinion, only one of them was really, you know, a, a declarative memory task per se. You know, one of them was, was really an attention task, you know, sort of a trails A, connect the dots kind of, kind of task. And then another one was a working memory you know, sort of end back task. Um, and then the third one was a verbal task, but it was um, a task in which people were asked to recall 12 words essentially immediately after hearing them. And then um, whichever ones they missed, right? If they only recalled, let's say six out of the 12 initially, then they were reminded of the six that they missed and then asked to do it again. And they repeated that a total of six times. And so the overall score, if you memorized all 12 words the very first time would be 72. Um, but there was no sort of offline, you know, period for them to, to, to really process or recall that info or consolidate that information, right? It was all kind of very immediate. So, so to me, that was probably the biggest, you know, difference between the studies or, you know, there were some others as well. Some of it had to do with the study design a little bit. So um, Apple's did use a, a sham uh, PAP as their control. And, and then the PAP adherence and the people that uh, were assigned to the PAP group um, was was less right so so Ina's paper uh, I thought was impressive because the degree of PAP adherence they got in those people that were assigned to the to the PAP group um, was reasonably good um, I think it was close to six hours Ina you can correct me yeah. if, I, if I'm wrong um, and it was it was a lot less it was only about four hours in, in apples and so obviously that that can make a pretty big difference also so Ina what what do you think were the important factors which contributed to your positive results now? We've mentioned the CPAP compliance. And did your study have any limitations? Yeah, I think the, you know, the advantage was that it was a small trial. And so people got a lot of attention and help from um, the technicians and from me um, in terms of to help with compliance. And I think that might have also made a big difference. Um, you know, when they had masks that they didn't like, we had supplies and we could give them a lot more support than probably my patients are getting um, in just everyday life. Um, so that was, I think, one that contributed, I think, to the somewhat higher than uh, usual compliance. And I would also underline uh, what Andrew said about the type of tests that we're using. Um, I think in the past, traditionally, people have used the regular neuropsych testing that um, neuropsychologists used to use. And I often bring up the, the streetlight effect here. And uh, for those who are not familiar, it's uh, where um, a policeman sees a drunk man who searches for uh, something under a streetlight and he asks what he lost. And the drunk person says, 
he lost his keys and they both look under the street light together. And then a few minutes later, the policeman asks if he was sure that he lost the keys there. And the drunk says, no, but this is where the light is. And so I think that, um, you know, we use the things that we're familiar with or where the light is. And, and, and you know, people were more familiar with these other tasks. And, um, and probably initially, there wasn't as much research um, supporting uh, the sleep dependent memory uh, tasks. And I think that we also saw that if you just look at the one time assessment, so for example, when they learn the test in the evening, they, the sleep apnea patients are not different than the healthy control. So you really only see the difference when you look at the sleep dependent memory consolidation. That's where you, uh, you can see, tease out the differences. And um, so I think that's, uh, uh, that's one aspect. In terms of limitations, um, you know, it was a small study. So you don't know if there are specific subgroups who benefit more uh, from CPAP than others. You also don't know if, um, again, the um, compliance was high. Uh, so we don't know if, for example, with this specific um, task, if using it less um, is, is just as good. Um, if using it, for example, four hours a night uh, gives you the same benefit, um, that's unclear. Um, and we also don't know if other treatment options, for example, an oral appliance or a simple oxygen um, is, is just as effective because um, while this is very convincing that if you have optimal conditions to treat your sleep apnea, it's um, harder to put it in, in real life conditions and um, it's much more challenging for people um, to commit to, to wearing a CPAP, even if we know it's beneficial. And then I guess the other question um, is, you know, how does it relate to the overall picture of memory decline? Um, what happens if people use it for longer periods of time? Um, does it prevent um, cognitive impairment? So those are all open questions and things that we couldn't answer with this study. So Andrew, that, that leads me really to my final question. What are the potential implications of these findings to the cognitive decline associated with neurodegenerative disease and obstructive sleep apnea? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, when I think about cognitive decline related to Alzheimer's disease, it's um, can kind of be thought of in two different ways, right? So one is that there's an inability to form new memories prospectively, which is kind of what was tested here. And that tends to be actually one of the earliest things that happens, right? And then over time, then people also actually um, lose memories that were well-formed right in the past, right? Stuff that they had already, you know, remembered and consolidated when, you know, they were kids or young adults. And I think that those things are potentially dissociable, but I think that because the loss of prospective memory is one of the earliest things, I mean, it kind of raises the possibility that if you have sleep apnea, that this is definitely a, a target for something to look into and treat and potentially, you know, recover potentially um, some of the deficits uh, associated with prospective memory formation. And if not completely recover it, at least potentially slow the progression of cognitive decline moving forward. Okay. Do either of you have any final comments you'd like to, to make about this paper? Ina, why don't you go first? 
Yeah, I think that um, what is exciting is that it shows that you can show an immediate improvement of, of memory formation. And I think that it hopefully will lead to um, more research uh, because, you know, we say, you know, deaths from other diseases have gone down, but we still don't have a good cure for Alzheimer's dementia. And uh, at the same time, um, sleep apnea is very modifiable and might be a great target to at least slow down the cognitive decline. And, and, and my hope is really that, um, you know, this kind of opens up, I think, more research to look into this um, more lo longitudinally and how it relates to um, cognitive impairment and dementia. Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I would just really echo, you know, something that Ina said earlier, which is how exciting it is to see that, you know, the, what appeared to be a deficit in people that had sleep apnea as compared to those people that don't was actually restored, right? I mean, because I think there's this open question in the field a little bit to what extent, you know, apnea really represents a reversible risk factor for cognitive decline, right? Because there's some thought that you have apnea for, you know, 30 or 40 years from the time you're like 30 to 60 or 70, that maybe that cumulative fact, you know, is doing some damage to neurons that maybe ultimately um, is irreversible for, for some sort of cognitive processes. And I think, like I said, to me, this was, this was very exciting to show that, um, you know, in this middle-aged population that, that there was actually sort of a recoverable phenotype that, that was able to be achieved with, uh, with treatment of apnea. And um, additionally, I would, like I said, I would sort of echo what, what Ina said, which is, I think that, you know, although PAP is great and we know PAP works really well, that, you know, I think that you know, more, more research is needed into looking at, you know, whether it's any therapy that reduces the AHI. This is a concept that's really, really been really championed by some of the people I work with, like David Rappaport and Ndoyapa, who are trying to begin studies looking at, you know, a combination of PAP, oral appliance, positional therapy, et cetera, whatever it takes essentially to reduce the AHI and then look at outcomes in that context, as opposed to kind of pigeonholing it into, into PAP treatment alone um, and then finally, as Ina said, I think that, you know, we need more that looks longitudinally. Like I said, this study was great. It looked at a three-month time point. I think it's going to be important as we move down the road to look at longer time points um, in longitudinal studies um, to really get at uh, the full benefit of uh, treating OSA. Well, I, I'd like to thank you both for this great discussion. To the listener, to read this article discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a great day.